Monday. Welcome to a very special episode of the Star of the Ego Feed the Soul podcast. My name is Nico Barraza, and today I am joined by a very good friend of mine, Mr. Sean Martin. Sean is Navajo, and he is the race director of the Canyon Deche Ultra Marathon. Sean's an educator. He was a D1 runner from Northern Arizona University. He's a father and a husband, and was born and raised on the Navajo Reservation. This conversation is absolutely magical. Sean is a man that I greatly respect his ability, not only to tell stories, but tell meaningful stories and share bits of his culture and his language with the outside world has really created a bridge for not only runners, but people in general to get to know the Navajo and Diné culture. He introduces himself in his native Navajo language, and he shares a lot about uh, the colonialization that happened on the Navajo Res, specifically his father's experience and his experience as a young man growing up on the Navajo Res. And then we also get into some of his own beliefs being Navajo and his relationship with the land and how he experiences that through running and the importance of connectivity with other humans and to bridge the gaps across cultures to get to know each other and really just to encourage each other to open up and connect and reach across the borders. I first met Sean in 2014 when I drove out to uh, Canyon de Chez for the first time. And at that time, Sol and I were living in this small burgundy van that we had built out or I had built out. Sol didn't build it. Um, she definitely lived in it. Uh, and so we head out, we headed out there to write an article and shoot photos for competitor magazine at the time. Now, Competitor has since been rebranded to Podium Runner, and I'll link to the article in the show notes because um, if you want to get to know more about the race, um, the article sort of does a great job of describing uh, my experiences there. And I wasn't there to race. I was there just to shoot photos and to cover uh, the race and uh, to interview Sean and his family and some of the runners that partook in the 2014 running of the Canyon to Shea Ultra Marathon. But being there, really opened up my eyes to just how special not only Sean is as, as a person and his family, um, but how this event was much more than just a race, how it bridged cultures together. It opened up people's hearts through running. And um, just from the first night of him telling stories to the crowd, uh, the runners that arrived to the race beforehand, it was just mes mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing. He's a very special man. He has a very huge gift for storytelling. And he ultimately, he just cares about other people. He cares about his culture deeply. He cares about other cultures and he's always been an ambassador for connectivity. And I really love the ideas and the philosophies he brings to the table during this conversation. There's a tiny bit of internet lag. So if you hear some space between uh, when I ask him a question to when he responds, that that's why it's not super bad, but just wanted to I'll let you be aware of that. This conversation is wonderful. It is worth listening to the entire thing. I promise. Uh, I'm going to link to everything that Sean brings up in the description below. And uh, I highly recommend looking into uh, what this man's doing, not only with the Canyon to Ultra, but um, just everything he's involved in. Uh, again, I can't speak uh, highly enough about Sean and I really am thankful for him um, to come on the show and to share. Um, bits of his soul with us. So without further ado, Sean Martin. 
Everyone got uh, vaccinated yeah. other than our, our Did you grow kids. your hair back? Yeah, my hair is down to the back of my middle of my back now. So I guess it's been a while, huh? Awesome. I remember the when I first met you. Yeah, no, when I first met you, you had long hair and then you cut it because uh, I can't remember what, what family member passed away, but you cut your hair and then you grew, you grew it back. Yeah, my, my grandma passed and, uh, you know, culturally we... We have that's a right, ceremony right. right after that. And uh, part of letting that go is cutting your hair. So that's what I did. And then I started my master's for uh, K-12. Right. Uh, K- I remember you saying that. Yeah, the, the K-12 principalship program, educational leadership. And so another teaching is uh, you're not supposed to cut your hair when, okay. you're, when you're learning things. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I didn't cut my hair at all through that master's. and. Two and a half years later, there it is. It's down the middle of my back again. <laughs> yeah, I'm growing my back too. That's a, I didn't realize that that was also a part of it though. When you're learning, you, you shouldn't cut your hair. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Learning or, or uh, important or valuable experiences, uh, stuff like that. You want to you wanna keep your hair. We think that the knowledge and those experiences and those teachings are all a part of that. So you don't want to cut them off and let them go. That's wonderful, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I know you're a busy man and uh, getting, you know, a couple hours with you is, is, a, is a privilege, I feel like, um, to hear your wisdom and hear you talk about and share things. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a crazy time. This, this last school year has been nuts, but uh, it's more than my pleasure to be able to jump on and uh, spend some time hanging out and talking with you and talking about some important things. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think I, the first time I met you, correct me if I'm wrong, was when I went to Canyon de Shea to write that article, right? And it was like, I think it was in 2015. It was for a competitor magazine. And uh, I just, uh, Joe Grant, my friend had told me about the race. And um, I drove out there from Flagstaff and met you and then uh, got in your truck with Milo and Sol, my dog. And you drove me like uh, around sort of to the last aid station um, out by Spider Rock. That's what, it, that's what it's called, right? And uh it was just, it was just wonderful spending time with you, dude. Like the whole, the whole experience uh, for people that are listening that aren't in the ultra running community, uh, this race that Sean directs uh, in Canyon to Shea called Canyon to Shea ultra marathon. It's just a lot more than a running race. It's just quite a beautiful cultural experience that blends, you know, distance running with spirituality and obviously the sort of deep culture uh, that is on the Navajo res and the Navajo people. Uh, do you want to, talk about um maybe your background a little bit sean and we can start there sure sure um so uh yat eh ya sean martin yinishye beish bachai dinne initially sitna jini bashis chin beish bachai dasha chedo honoratni dasha nele uh so what i just said is in navajo who i am as a navajo person um, I said, I am the one that is called or who is called, referred to as Sean Martin. So my name is Sean Martin. Um, I am of the Beshpachai clan and uh, that's metal hat people. Clan is my first clan. I'm born for the uh, Sitnat Jini or Black Streak in the Wood people. Um, my maternal grandfather is Beshpachai Dene, and my paternal grandfather is um, 
Honorathni, or one who walks around clan. And so in the Navajo or Dine culture, we always introduce ourselves with our four clans because through our clanship, we establish kinship. Um, so uh, I could be clan related to another Navajo person, having never met them before in my life, or be, uh, say, related to them blood-wise, like uh, in Western ideas, uh, however, still be directly related to somebody. And uh, that's how we establish kinship and relationships. Uh, so that's who I am as a person. Um, I'm currently here at my parents' place, and uh, I grew up here in a little place called Lachii in northern Arizona. It's just south of Page and uh, just east of Horseshoe Bend. A lot of people know the tourist destination of Horseshoe Bend. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, nobody knew about that place. It's literally out my parents' door right here. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's one mesa over, uh, about two miles bird flight away. And then um, where I'm at is also uh, about two miles bird flight uh, to the west of Antelope Canyon. And so if you triangulate Page, Horseshoe Bend, and Antelope Canyon, my parents' home site sits on the reservation uh, right in the middle of the three of those. Uh, so this is where I grew up. This is the place where uh, I learned to run. I learned about life and uh, created some lasting relationships that still exist today with all things. Uh, people, plants, and animals, and the, the natural elements. And um, I went to school here in, in Page. We got bused on a school bus off the reservation here into Page. Went through the Page public school system and then uh, was running competitively through elementary, middle school, and high school and earned a scholarship to run cross-country and track and field at NAU. Uh, which uh, the NAU Jacks just won their fourth national cross-country title in the last four years today. So uh, congrats to uh, Coach Smith and the, NA right. the NAU Lumberjacks. It's a, yeah, so proud alumni here of uh, the NAU cross-country program. And um, I graduated from NAU in, in 2004 and moved immediately to the very middle of the Navajo Nation to a little place called Chin Lee. Uh, which is considered a very sacred place with Canyon de Shea there. My wife's from there, her family's there, and uh, they had a teaching and, and coaching position open there at the high school. So I jumped straight into that and uh, haven't looked back. I'm, I'm currently the athletic director, uh, administrator at the high school, and um, I taught and coached there for just over nine years. And in that nine years, our teams there at Chin Lee were able to win 14 team state titles. And uh, we had 49 kids go to college on scholarship in just under 10 years, um, which is more important to me than anything in the world. Uh, we, don't, we didn't care too much about the state titles. It's always nice to say you're the best in the state on that day. However, those titles meant a lot more to us than, than just being the best in the state. Those titles were, were a material possession that proved that, that the kids from the middle of the reservation with all the hardships and all the obstacles and the lack of resources and the social ills that, that exist on the reservation, those kids were strong enough to overcome those obstacles uh, and still thrive in you know, their academics and athletics and earn college scholarships. So... 
Um, I did that for almost 10 years. And then I went to Diné College, which is uh, the tribal uh, collegiate institution in, uh, just outside of Chinle, uh, where I was the athletic director and cross-country coach for two years. Uh, in those two years, uh, the women won two national titles and the men won one. Um, and then I came back to the school district at Chinle uh, just because I felt like the ability to me, for me to uh, help uh, more students, there's a, a thousand students at our high school, uh, the ability for me to, to help more was uh, a little bit more uh, accessible there. So I went back to the high school and that's where I'm at now as an administrator. Uh, my wife's an elementary teacher at the at the Chinle Elementary School, and uh, we have two children. Uh, our firstborn is his name's Maverick. His middle name is the Navajo word for bluebird, Dole. Uh, he's 12 years old, and uh, we chose Dole because in the Navajo uh, ideas and philosophies, the bluebird isn't just a a beautiful thing; it's also a very fierce and very sacred animal who uh, may be small and, and beautiful, but uh, will and has the ability to fend and defend its territory and for its family. Uh, our daughter is uh, 10 years old. Her name is Isabel. Her middle name is the Navajo word for wildflower or sunflower, Nitiyili. And uh, we chose that because wherever you go in the world, whatever climates you go to, um, you will always find wildflowers. And uh, we we chose that because we we view wildflowers as a, a naturally beautiful yet resilient and strong uh, flower that can can thrive in almost any condition. So that's that's who we are as a as a small family unit, and uh, that's what we do. Dude, I forget how good of a storyteller you are. Because I haven't heard you uh, talk in a while, in a long time, and you have such a gift. And I think this is a lot of people that are Navajo too, because uh, Milo has this gift too. You guys just like I don't know your your ability to tell a story. Like I feel like I'm there, and that's that's why when I listened to you first sort of speak to the crowd in 2015 at the Canyon Ultra, I was like. I don't know, just captivate. Like I wrote about it. You know, people had tears in their eyes when you were talking about the wild horses running through the Canyon as you run, you know, and what, uh, encouraging people to sort of like scream and yell in the morning and talking about the morning prayer and sort of how running's integrated in the Navajo culture. And it's just a lot more than just physical, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, a physical sort of achievement. It's a lot more than that. So thank you so much for, you know, telling everybody a little bit about your family one of the stories you told me that I, I would love for you to share is the one about your father and about um, sort of the colonialization that happened on the res and, you know, how old uh, he was when he was taken and sort of um, that entire story of, of really how you told it to me is, is he was sort of the first ultra runner in the family um, at a very young age, not, not in the sense that he was training for a race, but that he was escaping uh, sort of indoctrination yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, the you know the the Western history books, history books the the world over um, have uh, many wonderful things written in them. However, there there's a lot of uh, things 
missing in history books. And part of Navajo history uh, that we know in Western world, the Western world is is uh, mainly written by non-Navajo, non-Native people. Uh, so there's all this history that that is uh, here on Navajo land and in our culture that uh, only locals know because we, they were the only ones here who experienced it. Um, and so most people the world over know Navajo culture because of the beautiful landscape and and parts of the culture like the the songs and and silversmithing and uh, the tapestries like the Navajo rug weaving and and Navajo basketry uh, and and pottery and things like that. Uh, most people know all of these beautiful things, these these artifacts that our our culture has. However, most people the world over don't know about some of the traumas and some of the hardships of life here. I mean, more than half the Navajo people still live in what is considered poverty. It's almost like a third world country. I mean, every Saturday, Sunday, you're, you may watch uh, the, the football game or a baseball game on on uh, ESPN and, and you don't realize that the commercials talking about the starving kids in these third world countries exist however they also exist in, in our own backyard in uh the southwest and all over the the nation but um so yeah there's some there's some things that happened on the navajo nation and i just wanted to bring that up before i tell the story because i think it's important to to realize that although running is something that native people are known for especially long distances it's in our culture and it's in our it's in our stories uh of people running um, very long distances, and um, it's it's outstanding to hear some of the old stories of people doing outstanding distances in in incredible time um, before Westerners came to this area. However, more modern stories exist as well, like my father's. So my dad was about ten years old when, uh, and he grew up. He grew up in an area just east of the Grand Canyon uh, called Bottaway. And so uh, most people know that area as the Gap or near Cameron. Um, so he grew up way out on the eastern rim of the Grand Canyon, where the, that's where the traditional home site was. And uh, when he was about 10, um, some army jeeps rolled up to the homestead and they hadn't had any vehicles yet. They had only had horses and, and uh, wagons. And so uh, some army jeeps rolled up and took him. They, they forced him into this jeep at gunpoint and took him to a boarding school. And they took his siblings as well and they separated all of the siblings, uh, sent them to different boarding schools because they didn't want the kids to have a familiar face at the same school. So um, they sent him to this boarding school in Loop, which is just uh, east of Flagstaff. Um, when he got there, they threw him out of the Jeep and he had to stand in a line. And uh, the closer he got to the front of that line, he realized what they were doing. They were taking all of the clothes from these Navajo kids and they were standing there naked. The closer he got to the very front, uh, he realized that they were cutting their hair off. You know, uh, hair is very important. Like I, like we were just talking about, it we believe it contains knowledge, knowledge and and teachings and and experiences that we value. So we don't 
we don't cut that generally. Um, and so understanding that the hair was important to him, he tried to get out of the line and a boarding school attendant had a hot shot. Um, I don't know if you know what a hot shot is, but it's a, it's an electrified cattle prod to make cows move more quickly. So when he got out of line, a, a attendant hit him in the back of the neck with a, with a hot shot to make him stand in line. And he realized he wasn't getting out of it. So his turn came up and they cut his hair off and shaved it and uh, left a little patch of hair right in the front, about an inch and a half by an inch and a half square, right on the, the top of the forehead. And, um, and it was about four inches long. And uh, that came to be known as what uh, Navajo people have this awesome sense of humor. They'll, they'll find positive in, in the most negative situations. So we now joke about it as a government handle. It was the Navajo government's boarding school way of grabbing children and ma making them move. They would grab that tuft of hair in the front of their forehead and pull them around. Um, and when, when my dad spoke in English or Navajo, they, they punished him. And he only knew Navajo at that point. So he had a, a really rough time having to learn English and learning the way of this boarding school because he didn't speak English. And, and um, this was during the, the, the Kill the Indian and Save the Man initiative, where these boarding schools uh, were going in and basically trying to colonize every Native American in the country. And uh, obviously, my, my dad hated this. You know, just, just take a step back, though. This was my father's first day of organized education, of school. This was my dad's first day of school. Now, just imagine what your and I, my first day of school was like. You know, very different, right? Very, very different. Our first day of school, our parents probably drove us to school. Or we, we rode a, a bus. And as we got to that school, there was a, a teacher or a, or a worker out front who welcomed us to school and then walked us to our teacher's classroom. And our teacher in the kindergarten or pre-K gave us some love and hugged us and all these things, right? That's the typical uh, first day of school now. Uh, but my dad's was very opposite. Uh, he hated school. He did everything he could to 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 you know, stay Navajo and, and they were doing everything they could to get the Navajo out of him. Um, so obviously he wanted to find a way out of there. And one night he came up with this idea and uh, he started saving up his food, extra food from the dining hall and he stored it in his pillowcase. And so when he had some food, enough food that he felt like he could run away one night when the boarding school attendant who slept in the, the, the dorm rooms um, it was one, it wasn't, it wasn't dorm rooms. It was one big room where about 50 to 60 kids slept on cots. When that person was asleep, he snuck out and he ran as fast as he could down into the little Colorado river wash. And he knew if he stayed in the little Colorado river wash, it would end up at Cameron. And so that's what he did. He stayed in that wash and ran all night long. And he was only 10 years old. Now, remember he's 10 years old running for his life. Uh, in the middle of the night, away from boarding, uh, the boarding school with boarding room attendants uh, chasing him on horseback and in jeeps. And uh, when the sun came up the next morning, he just went underneath some brush and, and stayed down all day. And he said he could hear people calling his name and, and yelling for him, but he never, he never got up. He didn't want to go back, so he stayed down. 
And at sunset, he got up and he ran again, and he made it all the way to Cameron Trading Post. Trading Post, and he said he went uh, behind the trading post to the stalls, and he slept back there during the second day. And uh, he got up the next the next night, the third night, and uh, he knew the way home from Cameron because that's where the family took the horses and the and the wagon to for for goods. And so. Over the course of the third and fourth night, he finally made it home. We figure he ran uh, about 80, between 75 and 80, 80 miles uh, that very first time, all at night um, and as a 10-year-old. Um, he got home, and uh, the Navajo language is, is very uh, descriptive. And when he tells this story, he tells, talks about... Uh, the light of the Hogan shining out at night and the, the flicker of the fire when he walked in and his grandmother uh, hugging him and embracing him and just the smell of grandma again and the smell of the, the dirt floor and the, the logs of the Hogan and then the taste of, of um, traditional food and bread again. Uh, it's all very emotional. Just imagine the emotions of a 10-year-old running for his life at night, almost 80 miles to get home because he hated school so much. Uh, he was home for about a day and a half uh, before the army jeeps rolled up and uh, took him right back to, to, to the boarding school. Uh, this was about 10 years old and he was about in the fourth grade. And... Um, over the course of the next two years, he did it, he thinks, from what he can remember, about five or six more times. So many times that they actually started, him and some other boys, uh, actually made bets to who could run off. They would all run in different directions. And uh, who could stay out the longest would be the winner. And uh, whoever was the last one to get caught and brought back would... Uh, would win a week's worth of dessert from uh, the other boys who took part in the bit. So uh, he did it enough where the the boarding school said, you know, you're you're a problem child. You you're you're not welcome him here anymore. As much as we're trying to teach you and change you, you you are not savable. You are going to be a nobody in life. You're you're not going to ever learn, and you will be a failure in life. You're not welcome here anymore. Leave. And they just. They just kicked him out. So he's like, you know, I, I don't want to be here anyways. So he packed his bags and or his pillowcase and uh, he rolled out of there. And uh, actually on his way back, walking home, uh, some missionaries found him and uh, asked if he wanted to be placed with a foster family. Well, the kid was 12 by this time and he had no idea what a foster family was. And so he said, sure. And he jumped in the vehicle and they took him to central Utah where he grew up with a, a Mormon foster family from there. And, and actually it was the foster family, the Tom six who, uh, took the opposite approach of the boarding school. They embraced him being Navajo and learned from him. And he did the, the, the same. He embraced them and learned from them. And he made it through high school there. And he actually made it through high school very successfully wow. and uh, earned a basketball scholarship to, uh, to BYU. He went to BYU. I uh, realized that BYU wasn't the place for him. So he got out of there after a year and, um, 
moved home and married my mom and, and started a family right here in, in Lichi. So yeah, it's a, it's a very common story though in Navajo history that in the 60s and 70s, uh, kids were running from boarding schools and they weren't as fortunate as my father. Many of them died out there of either heat exhaustion or hyperthermia or just uh, dehydration or starving to death not knowing the way home many kids died and and wow. not many people know that but i mean just the strength and resilience for kids to do that is is amazing and for my dad to do it as a 10 year old and make it successfully multiple times uh it, it was outstanding that's an incredible story dude uh one of the questions i have is you know it's it's so essential for people that live in this country specifically to know the history intimately of the indigenous tribes and their interaction with the, the, you know, colonization and then the U S government, like for people that have no background in this at all, you know, where do people start, you know, where do people start to get this knowledge to, you know, the thing that comes to mind is like Howard Zinn's the, the people's history. It's a sort of, you know, textbook, you know, explaining the history from, the sides of all these cultures that, you know, aren't written about in traditional, you know, Americana history, you know, in most of the schools like you and I went to that taught. So like for, for people that are interested, cause there's a lot of folks out there that really specifically right now, since we have so much um, I'd say growing pains in America and in this country, you know, hopefully that leads to positive change because people are searching for wisdom um, outside of their own predisposed beliefs and teachings you know, for the Navajo culture specifically, like where would an outsider go, you know, to really educate themselves on what has happened and learn stories like your father's, like your own. So that way they can sort of bridge the gap between cultures. I think the first step and one of the most important steps is to, for people to understand where they're at first, wherever they may be in, in North America, um, there, there are original inhabitants to those lands that they are on. Uh, the original peoples of that land, they need to acknowledge that land first. Who were the original inhabitants of that land? And then at a deeper level, start to understand who those people were and their relationship with that land and the sky and all the different elements in that place. And uh, I, I would say to do that by simply talking with people. I mean, all people are social beings. All things are, are, are thrive upon relationships. Um, and so, so beginning that conversation and I mean, doing it with, with respect is, is the first step and, and saying, you know, you see somebody that may be native and simply asking, Hey, are you native? And I'm sure the person, and if they do it in a respectful manner, would be more than willing to say, yes, I'm Navajo, or I'm Diné, or yes, I'm Hopi, or yes, I'm Apache, or uh, whatever the, the area they're in. And then beginning that conversation, because you never know what kind of relationship could, de could de develop from that. Much like your and I relationship, you know, you heard about the race through Joe, and you came out and said, hey, I just want to learn about you, your culture, and, and what's going on here. And without realizing it, you were, you were giving that acknowledgement to the land and to the culture. You asked a thousand questions that weekend, and uh, everyone that, that we were around, I'm sure, were, were more than willing to uh, entertain your, your questions, but 
beyond just entertain your question, really explain the meanings behind their answers. And um, I think that's how you truly develop a, a sense of not just a place, but a sense of the people who in- inhabit that area. Um, and then you get into the history of it. And beyond, once you get into the history of it, you start to understand the traumas. And, and I don't want to focus so much on the negatives because in the Navajo culture and in, in almost all indigenous cultures worldwide, we have a word for balance. We have a world, a word for respecting the negative and the positive in life. And in Navajo, it's hajjan. It literally means to walk in beauty or to walk in balance, to, to, to live in that uh, delicate swing of positive and negative. You know, you can't have all negative in life. There's going to be some positive. You can't have all positive in life. There's going to be some negative. So taking this or this path of beauty or balance uh, to figure out uh, what is the best way for you to become the person you want to be in the place that you're in is very important, I think. And, um, you know, doing doing that is, is a good start. Just opening up the conversation with those people from those areas with a true open mind and a true open heart uh, and, a, and an open spirit to understanding the people of those areas. And those people also want to learn about you and your culture and where you're from and, and uh, thrive on those relationship building uh, times. I love it, man. That's You put that so well. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of view and the relationship Navajo people have with their environment? You know, not just through running, but, uh, you know, from the origin story through you know, the different beliefs in Diné culture. Can you talk about that? Cause I, I find that stuff. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's so deep and rich, but for me, like when I first learned about those stories, it connected with me so well. Cause I'm like that, that's sort of how I view everything. I just wasn't able to put it into words. Like it has already been talked about in your culture. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, prefacing this, this conversation or story part with, uh, the understanding that, uh, people all over the world have different names for the creator or God or spiritual beings or uh, divine spirits. There's there's different names that get used all the time and, and wars start over just the simple way we address these, these deities, these sacred beings, these higher powers. Um, and it really comes down to something very simple in in Navajo belief and the Navajo life way. Um, but I don't want to say that I'm a spokesman for all Navajo people and all Navajo views, but for my own relationship with my culture mm-hmm. and the way I was brought up with the traditional beliefs and my family and, and within our, our tribal uh, ceremonies, um, you know, understanding the the Navajo creation story where the first world was and the second world and the third world and now here in the fourth and this shimmering or uh, uh, fourth world that we're in now is understanding that 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 story and how people came to the world that we're in now and how we live and as you said, how we interact 
inside the world that we're in now um, is, uh, is, I don't want to say it's simple, but it, it kind of is. You know, we are living creatures and, and in the Navajo uh, way of life and, and philosophy, we are people. And that, that's very simple on the surface. Most people in the world will say, yeah, I'm a person. And uh, that's what Navajo people believe. We are people. All things, to go a little bit further, all things are people. All animals are people. All birds, all insects are people. Um, all the elements are people. There's the mountain people. The, the air people, the rock people, the water people, the, you know, there, there's people all around us that we don't on a daily basis in a Western way acknowledge as people. The earth is our mother. The father is our sky. Um, there's all these people in between. And then there's the spiritual people. And so the only way that we differentiate ourselves from, say, the animal people is that we are five-fingered people. We have five fingers. So we say, five-fingered people. Then there's, you know, the water people and, and so on and so forth. So just understanding the relationship between all people is what we want to do on a daily basis. We want to understand our relationship with our mother, the earth, with our father, the sky, with the creator, with uh, the holy people, the holy spiritual people that we believe in as Navajo people. And then we have to understand the relationship that we have with the water and um, the animals and the plants and, and everything that, that falls into the world as we see it on a daily basis. Um, and you talked a little bit about how we interact with that. Uh, we traditionally, the way I was taught, is we get up and we run every morning to the east. We wake up and we run to the east. If you look at a Navajo traditional home, it's called a hogan. And it, it always faces east for a very important reason. The, the hogan itself is, is uh, an octagonal, almost a dome shape. And it's made out of logs and earth, traditionally. And we believe that, you know, the logs representing the people of this world as uh, a gift from Mother Earth and Father Sky, creating trees, we use the logs. And then we use the wood or the, the mud the dirt from our mother to create this dome, almost like a womb. And understanding a hogan, the fire is at the center, representing life. Every night we go into this hogan and go to sleep. And every morning, it's like we're being reborn from our mother's womb again. And the, with the fire giving us life, we open up the door facing east as the sun is rising at dawn. And as the sun rises and the first morning light comes into that doorway, that face east and into the Hogan, it's like it's breathing life back into us and we're reborn every morning. And so to, to, to celebrate our life every morning is an important thing to do, to give thanks for our life and our blessings that we've had throughout our lifetime, throughout just our lives, we get up and we run to the east. We open the door, 
we welcome in that shandin or the morning light, the rays of light come into the Hogan and bless the home. We go out and we start running to the east. And when we do, we yell, we yell out loud uh, and we announce to the creator, we announce to the holy beings, the deities that we believe in that are out in the morning. Much like a family is there when a baby is born, we believe that the spiritual deities and Father Sky, the Creator, and the holy people are there witnessing our rebirth that day. And when we yell out loud, we announce to them that we're thankful for our life and all the blessings, both positive and negative blessings. We view the negatives in life, the hardships as blessings, because without those, we wouldn't learn to adapt and become stronger and learn how to overcome obstacles and become a more successful person. So we yell out loud to say, thank you. We are, we are here and thank you for your blessings. And as we continue to run to the east, we begin praying and we give thanks and we acknowledge the four sacred mountains. We acknowledge the sky and, and the earth. We acknowledge the emergence, the, the, the sacred places on Navajo land. And um, we give thanks. And then at the end of our run to the east, we turn around and we run home to begin our day. And so running itself is an interaction that we have every day with everything around us. We believe that we're speaking to the earth through our feet. We're literally running and dancing and communicating to our mother, the earth. And in the morning, we, we breathe in Father Sky. We breathe in life that Father Sky and the Creator and the Holy People have given us through air and breath. And as we continue to run, we, we, we connect. We connect to the tree and plant people. We connect to the birds and the flowers. We connect to these people that we believe in, the, the water from the earth, the water from the sky, um, like those, those people, those spiritual powers are there. And we try to tap into that. And uh, we continue to run with this connection of everything around us. As we speak to Mother Earth through our feet, she communicates back to us and that the feeling, the push of mother comes through our feet, through our legs and into our core. The breath of Father Sky comes into us and into our lungs and into our core. And we believe that the center of our chest, the, our center is the center of our universe. My universe is located, the center of it is right here in my core. And so how I move about through that run and then how I move about through the day is centralized and in balance with the entire universe around me, with the connection to all those spiritual beings and spiritual powers. And when you can do that, a lot of people when they're running and they feel what's called a, West, uh, a runner's high, right? In, in many Western terms, the runner's high is what Navajo and most Native American people uh, say is just that deeper connection to those spiritual beings. You know, just just uh, remember, think about like the in the Olympics when the ten thousand meter finishes and they interview the the gold medal champion, and he says. Uh, I really felt the power, the connection, the, the energy coming from the crowd, the people in the stands really brought me home for that last 400 meters. Well, that was that person tapping into the energy of those people 
in the crowd, pushing him and giving him power and the ability to push farther and go faster. Well, we believe through the connection to the people in these sacred places that we can also tap into that and they can push us and connection. And that connection gives us uh, that sense of balance and energy to start our day. Uh, So running is that first. It's a celebration of life and a form of connection. After that, it's a, it's a, it's a teacher. It's a mentor. It shows us how to overcome obstacles because you know it as a runner, there's times when you doubt and you're feeling pain physically and mentally and emotionally, and then even spiritually. But somehow, some way, running gives you the ability to overcome those negativities and feel good about it when you're done. Uh, you, you, you finish and you feel accomplished for the day. And so for that reason, it's a teacher, it's a mentor. Running is a form of prayer. The act itself, by doing those things, it's a, it's a way to pray. And then uh, finally, running is, is, a, is a form of medicine. It's a form of healing. By going out and, and praying and celebrating and learning, you're, you're also healing yourself, both physically, but also mentally, and most, important, most importantly, spiritually. Dude, I love how you sort of broke down because I, I actually, um, I think you said this to me a long time ago, but I, I didn't remember how just the idea of what a, what people are, you know, it isn't just the physical person, like isn't just someone who is Navajo, but it's everything, every everything around us. And I, I think it, sometimes I find it hard to sort of, um, you know, put that in terms people can understand is where we're, we're really interconnected with everything. And I think that that's something that a lot of indigenous cultures do a beautiful job at explaining. And a lot of us in the Western world with, you know, iPhones and things moving a million miles per minute, I think we've become detached from that connection in a lot of ways, you know, and running is obviously one way to connect um, back to sort of, well, if we use the term other people, you know, just like, and I think it's a, it's just a beautiful way to put it because I think a lot of people's disconnection from our environment, not just each other, um, but from our environment, from our cultures, from community, from real authentic community is sort of what you just described because there's so much healing and growth in that. And we, you know, if we don't sort of try to find our way back to our roots in that way, um, it just seems quite dangerous if we kind of stay on the path of, of ignoring that, that part of being human yeah, you know, I think you, you nailed it. Uh, you nailed it as far as the, the iPhones and technology being a really good way to disconnect uh, from some of the most important things in life. And that's building relationships with people. And those people being, yeah, the five people, fingered people, but also the plant people and the elemental people and the insect people and uh, the animal people. You know, we, we forget about that connection. And those are some of the most, to me and to, to most Native people, those are some of the most fundamental and uh, basic connections that we need in life on a daily basis. Uh, not just on a weekend basis or once a week, once a year when you get a, a 
you know, you take your family vacation to Hawaii or whatever. Yeah, that's a beautiful place to connect to all those beings. However, you can't just do it one week at a time a year. You got to, to me, you got to do that on a daily basis to really become the person that that you envision becoming. And, and if you want to uh, lead the life of a, of, a, of a parent or a guardian, then you have to also offer the abilities to connect to those people that you protect and serve. Um, however, I, I will say that, again, with the idea of hajon and balance, the technology of today uh, has a lot of positives to connect as well. I mean, just look at us now. I'm sitting in the middle of the Navajo Nation sharing with you some of the most important things in my life and in my culture, and we're being able to spread this teachings and this positivity and this way to connect with people around the world. And so to be able to use these tools to to, to communicate the positives and connect in the positive way is, is a huge blessing. I always say that preservation begins, begins with education and connection begins with education. Most beautiful things in life begin with education. So learning these ways and learning these ideas and philosophies and ways to connect are, are very important. And technology has a beautiful way to do that. I mean, Another example of an iPhone being super useful when it comes to, to connection is um, I have on my iPhone recordings of my father's both traditional Navajo songs and NAC, which is Native American Church songs, songs that are sacred to my family and way of life and praying and singing and connecting. And, you know, I don't live here with my father and so for me to be able to listen to his songs and then plug into those songs and sing with my father, even though he may not be right here next to me right now, when I do that is a beautiful way to connect, a beautiful way to reinforce my father's teachings and my cultural teachings before I start my day every day or during a rough time or during a positive time to be able to have those recordings in my phone and to just be able to plug in and say, boom, they're right there. It's a wonderful thing. So there's both negatives and positives to, to technology today. And uh, I think it's just a matter of how we view it and how we see it. If, if your, your view of um, being able to connect with what's sacred to you, I guess the question is what's sacred to you. If uh, seeing who got what new shoes on Facebook or what brand new car on Facebook uh, is your sacred uh, way of life, then yeah, connecting that way is going to be super valuable to you. But uh, sharing important landmarks in traditional life on Facebook is something that uh, I see Facebook as a positive way or building the culture around the Ken and Deshaies Ultra Marathon through our Facebook page is a super uh, positive mm -hmm. and, and influential way to use the technology in a, in a way to help people connect and learn. And again, learning about places is how you preserve them. Right. I love it, brother. Can you talk about the ultra because uh, you know let's just assume that a lot of people listening aren't ultra runners because this podcast isn't just geared towards ultra running but can you talk about how you got the idea to start it and then talk about the area a little bit 
and then also get into sort of the community you've built around this event because from when you started it until now, I mean, it is, it is like internationally known. I mean, this thing sells out online within minutes now, you know, it crashes websites, you know, <laughs> so talk about that. Cause that it's just amazing what you've built with this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was, I was teaching and coaching at, uh, at the high school and, um, I decided to stop coaching, which I, I, you know, at that point I would have never ever guessed I was going to resign from my coaching position. I'd always wanted to be a teacher and a coach, just like the amazing uh, educators and coaches I'd had in my life up until that point. And, um, uh, for, for some, uh, difficult reasons that were out of my control, out of the control of my family. Um, I had to step away from coaching at the high school for a little bit. And, um, uh, it was difficult because, uh, you know, the relationships built with the kids at the school, uh, they were like little brothers and sisters to me. And, and, uh, we, we still have awesome relationships that are just outstanding. And it was just a difficult time to have to step away for a little bit. Um, but to continue to support the team, um, I came up with this idea while I was out running one day, you know, at that time I was, I was running ultras and, uh, part of my regular routine was just a long weekend run. And, uh, at that time, um, I lived about a mile away from the entrance to Canyon de Shea, the mouth of Canyon de Shea, where the riverbed, uh, in Canyon de Shea exits the canyon and, and enters the valley. I lived about a mile, and I still do live about a mile away from the canyon. Uh, so my long run that day, it was a, it was a June, a uh, Saturday or a Sunday. During the monsoon season, I went into the canyon. And um, talking about technology, I never, I never run with, oh, I, I do run with a watch sometimes, only when I have to know when to turn around and come back. You know, I don't watch my a GPS to, to base my long runs off a of pace or anything like that. I just run to run in the traditional reasons. And so on this day, I figured I'd be out for about uh, four to six hours and I would just run in the canyon for those traditional reasons. So I took off that morning. It was a really hot June day and uh, I was about two and a half hours up canyon and uh, it was time for me to turn around and come back. And so I was just cruising back down out of the canyon, uh, hardly see any people at all in there. You know, I, there might be uh, a local family at their home site in there, but uh, just for the, for the most part, running with all the natural things of the canyon, the walls, um, the canyon walls are just super powerful and, and uh, the wild horses that are in there, a couple deer and turkey and bear. And I'm just cruising through the canyon and I'm getting way more dehydrated. I'm getting more exhausted. The sand inside Canyon de Shea is just brutal uh, on the legs of a, of, a, of a runner when you're in there for a couple hours, uh, as you've experienced. Um, but uh, about... About four and a half hours in, I was, I was in a, I was in the hurt zone, man. I was, uh, my body was on fire. I was dehydrated. Um, uh, I was having fun. I, I was having fun learning my limits and pushing them and, and, uh, connecting to all things sacred. And, uh, 
at that point, I was starting to question, you know, should I take it a little bit easier and just walk in? Because I'm pretty thrashed and I need to be able to be uh, a husband and a father when I get home for the rest of the weekend. Um, and so right at that moment when I started doubting myself, uh, a really a really soft rain began. And um, it, it was monsoon season and the clouds rolled in and just this really fine rain came down, really soft mist. And, uh, and you know, in Navajo culture, we believe that there's male and female everything. You know, there's male and female people. There's male and female plants and animals and elements. So rain can be male and female. The female rain is the soft, really light rain that comes down and just kind of embraces your skin, right? And the male rain is that really hard, fast rain that drops in those really torrential storms. Um, and, and so this female rain came down and it just felt like the sky, the the father sky and I'm here in this beautiful place within the canyon walls. And we're told that when you're in the canyon, it's like the, our mother, the earth is hugging you. And so I just felt like I was just connected beyond belief when this female rain started coming down and blessing me. And it brought me back. It brought me some energy and it brought me some strength. And, and right as I started feeling rejuvenated, um, I came around this turn in the bend and there was this pack of wild horses, this herd of horses right in the middle of, of the, the canyon wash. And um, there was a, a colt that was just born that spring. And it's just this tiny little framed horse that was super small compared to these just awesome looking wild horses. And uh, I spooked them. They, they startled and they took off. They were running down the canyon wash with me behind them. And uh, the way wild horses uh, organize themselves is, is very structured. When they're threatened, they put the colts, they put the, the young and the most vulnerable in the center of the herd. And they put the mayors, the, the leading women up front to lead them down the canyon. And they put the stallion, the, the herd leader in the back, the warrior in the back to defend the herd. And uh, as we're running through this sand that's like a foot deep, this uh, about a mile and a half, two miles later, uh, this colt started to tire. It's just a, a brand new baby colt that doesn't have the endurance of the herd. And so as the colt starts to tire, it slows down. And uh, at this point, it's been almost two miles now, and, and the, the horses are all getting a little bit fatigued. There's nowhere to go. The canyon walls are straight up. It's canyon walls and dirt on the floor, and and uh, there's nowhere to go. So they're in front of me, and as the herd begins to slow around the, the horse, I begin the colt. I begin to catch them, and as I close the gap on the herd, uh, they begin to calm down. And and as I start to catch the herd, I'm almost running at the tail of of the the stallion in the back, and. Uh, it just felt like we were all running in stride together. You know, when these powerful horses' hooves hit the ground, this, the sand, it's like the whole ground shakes. And my footsteps were matching this herd as we were in rhythm, just rolling down the canyon. And uh, as, I, as I got even closer to the herd, it started to open up and, and they accepted me. So this, this herd of horses kind of opened up from the back end 
and expose the colt in the center. And I was able to run inside of the herd. And we just, we ran for probably a half mile to a mile. I don't even know how long, because we were all just kind of connecting and, and moving together as one unit. And uh, uh, before we knew it, we were at the end of the canyon. And uh, it was like this imaginary line was drawn at the end of the canyon, the mouth of the canyon that opened up into the valley. Um, well, it, it wasn't an imaginary line. It was a very real line to those horses. They knew they were the horses of the canyon and they that, that was their home. And we ran to the end of their, their boundary. And, uh, you know, I, I went on a little bit further and then I realized that they had stopped and I, and I turned around and the herd of horses were all shoulder to shoulder, kind of on that line, on that border, just looking at me with their, with their ears directed right at me. And, you know, it was just this experience where I forgot about time. I forgot about effort. I forgot about pain and, and, and the, 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 the dehydration that I was suffering from. And it was this, this pure moment of just true connection with the horses, with the canyon, with the rain, with everything that I think makes life worth living. Um, and it was just this beautiful moment. And I, and I, I, you know, I thank the canyons. I literally said out, out loud, uh, thank you to the horses. Thank you to the land. Thank you to the canyon. Thank you to the rain, to the sky. Thank you to the holy people. Thank you to the mountains. And uh, I, I turned around and ran that last little bit home, that last mile home. And uh, on that last mile, I was just kind of I was, I was emotional. I wasn't crying out loud, but you know, that feeling like when you're half like ready to cry and, and half ready to just laugh out loud, that's what I was doing. I was so like emotionally, like what just happened? That was amazing. And I was laughing, but I was emotionally connected and I was almost crying and I didn't know what I was doing. I was just running home with these emotions. And, and as I got closer to home, I got to some pavement there's about 400 meters of pavement before my house. And I was just like, what, what was that? I felt so fortunate to have that experience. And then that moment of bliss and euphoria just was overtaken with this feeling of, of self selfishness and, and almost greed. And it's hard to, to explain, but I felt selfish and greedy because on a daily basis, I get to have these experiences and I, I don't get to share those with many people. And uh, of course, of course, when I got home, I told my wife and my kids about this beautiful experience and they're kind of like, you know, another running story, you know, it's, it's awesome. It, and it, it's great. I'm glad you had a good run today, Sean. I'm glad you had a good run today, dad. Um, but I, I kind of felt selfish because I don't get to share that with many people outside of just my wife and kids. And so then I thought, thought that night when I was laying there, still reflecting on that run, you know, what if I started a race here? What if we, we did a, a race, a Canyon, uh, ultra marathon that, shared this experience with people all over the world and then greater than that share what Navajo culture is so people can come here and connect in the same way I just did to this sacred place and 
use the profits to benefit local runners like the high school and junior high runners. And beyond that, you know, preserve the culture. And then ex- explain to people who do come how sacred Canyon de Shea is itself to Navajo people and to the culture and to the creation story because the course would go right next to, to Spider Rock, which is a Navajo deity who taught us many things, one of which is how to weave, how to weave the Navajo uh, rugs that are so famous for. But also the Navajo language is tied to some of Spider Woman's story. Spider Woman's a deity in our, in our culture. And so I thought, what a beautiful way to, to do all of these things, to continue to support the local runners, but also celebrate the land and the culture and to share that with all the people of the world. So I started the Canyon de Shea Ultra. In the first year, it took about four days to sell the, the 150 spots that were open. The second year, there was some talk about it in the ultra running community, and it sold out in about two days. And by the third year, it had just blown up to the point that it shut down ultra signup in about an hour. And then after that, ultra signup said, you can't do just an open signup anymore because our, our servers are thinking it's being attacked from thousands of people worldwide and our servers are shutting down. So you need to go to a lottery system. So, so that's what we did. And I just have to give a big shout out to, to the National Park Service and to the Navajo Department of, uh, of Rec, Parks and Rec, because they provided the archaeologists and they provided the ability to go out into the canyon and set up landing zones in case of emergencies. Uh, and they worked with me to create this event, which had never been done before, because the only way a person can get into Canyon de Shea is with a Navajo guide, either on horseback or in a Jeep or a tour vehicle. Very seldomly do they do guided hikes, but uh, you, you typically don't hike 31, 34 miles in a day. So this ultra is the only way a person can go into Canyon de Shea on their own because their bib is their permit uh, without a guide in a vehicle or on horseback. It's the only time of the year. So um, I think because of that exclusivity, we're only allowed 150 runners. Uh, It became a very in-demand race or event, Uh, but it also is more than just a race because we share culture and we have this amazing uh, cultural exchange Friday night at the racer meeting and then throughout the whole day on Saturday. And and by the way, all of the, the way we do it with the prayers to begin the run and the prayers to end the run and all of the gifts to the runners. Instead of a finisher's medal, we do hand-beaded turquoise necklaces for your first finish. And then after that, it's, it's, it's um, uh, white shell, which is an important material, and then black jet, and then um, red coral. Um, and then the awards are all handmade um, necklaces, uh, buckles, uh, blankets, uh, pottery, all very important things. Navajo rug weavings from a local weaver that we have in Chinle. It's all handmade f- with love from the artists and uh, it's given out. Um, 
I don't want to put dollars on it because it's not about the money, you know, but most people would, would spend a lot of money buying things like these awards at different uh, traders and, and outposts and things like that. But we give it away as awards in, in the form of a gift and in form of thanks for people coming all the way out here to learn about this place and culture and experience it with true open hearts to uh, really make a connection. So that's the Canyon de Shea Ultra in a nutshell of how it came to be. And Can you talk about where the proceeds go to support sort of local runners? Um, and then, you know, maybe speak on like, where could people go to find the race if they are runners? And also like, do you guys take, you know, donations outside of people that aren't, you know, ultra runners, but still want to support, you know, young runners on the res. Oh yeah. Uh, most definitely. So first the, the profits of the race, um, we, we set up a business account through our local bank in Chinle and, um, basically all of the entries for the race get put into that account. And I use that, those funds to put on the race, to cover all the costs of the materials and, and things to put on the race. And then every year, whatever's left after the race on that sad, on that Sunday after the race, uh, we look at what we have left in that account and we start to strategize uh, how we're going to use it or uh, support whatever it is that we're going to support. So in the very first couple years, we used it to support local runners, the junior high and the high school kids, even some elementary kids, and not just the runners of Chin Lee. We helped kids get uh, kids from all over Indian country, um, kids off the reservation who were native, kids uh, from the Hopi nation, from the Apache nation, from the Pueblos, uh, go all over the country for like the U.S. Junior Cross Country National Championships to the U.S. Junior Olympics, the track and field championships. We help fund them to go to all of those races all over the country. Uh, we buy runners shoes all the time. Um, seldomly we'll buy um, whole teams uh, uniforms and warmups and things like that. So that's what we did for the first couple of years. Um, and then we started helping um, adults go to different races all over the world. So we've helped people go to like the Boston Marathon. We have a couple post-collegiate guys and even some some older masters runners who uh, are really well-known Native American runners uh, for their age categories go to like races like Boston and New York and Chicago and LA and uh, Honolulu and um, do some really fun and, and innovative things like that for, for some of the older runners. And uh, we took a lot of pride in that. And then we started uh, reaching out and doing um, projects around uh, Indian country. So lately we've been helping to deliver especially during the pandemic, um, aid. Um, so individuals who may have a fam family member in quarantine, uh, providing them just basic food necessities and, and uh, uh, PPE and, and cleaning. And um, it sounds odd, but it may sound odd to some people, but most fam, a lot of families don't have running water. So just delivering ways to, for people to have water at their home sites and, and firewood. We've delivered truckloads of firewood and, and barrels of water and 
We've also gotten into uh, helping to develop homes. So uh, this last year, we've actually uh, helped build uh, a Hogan and and finish Hogan's traditional homes. Um, and this last year, um, we actually renovated a whole cornfield and put in a whole all new fencing around a cornfield and provided a drip irrigation system for that cornfield. It's absolutely just just ground ground you know grassroots uh, boots to the ground work and using that funding to provide this infrastructure for for all these people has just been very re- rewarding um this last year we also um through a sister event virtual event that we began so uh due to the pandemic the navajo nation uh, shut down all the parks and and visitors coming on to tribal lands so we were not able to hold the 2020 canyon de Shea ultra so instead we turned to a virtual event and we called it the hashke virtual run hashke is the navajo word for warrior and so the whole idea or theme of the warrior run was to to go out and run in the traditional way that I described earlier in a, in a form of celebration and prayer and learning and healing uh, but not in the aspect that people think of warriors as fighters instead to the Navajo people a warrior is a person who simply represents and does things for their people in a beauty way in a beautiful way so go out and run for your people go out and celebrate the people that you represent your family unit your clan the people that uh, live in the area you're from go out and celebrate for them pray for them learn for them and most importantly during this pandemic heal for them so that's what this virtual hashke warrior run was all about and uh it was only like 40 bucks to enter and uh each person got a handmade um silver necklace that my wife and I spent a week making 650 of these things and uh and sent to every single participant and the whole idea was sign up for this run go and run walk crawl i don't care just go and do something to the east and do those four things and you will become a warrior you will earn your feather as a warrior and 650 people did that and you know some people went out and just did a mile half mile out half mile back some people went out and rode a bike to the east and came home some people ran what was it 56 miles was the longest one something like that like that is the most beautiful thing because they were embracing navajo cultures and the way the reasons to run but they were also doing it for their people and they were doing it all over the world we sent necklaces to people in asia it was it was absolutely beautiful on the other side of the world we sent uh these necklaces to so um with those fundings, we've been able to set up a scholarship foundation. And uh, that was the ultimate goal in starting the Canyon de Shea Ultra. We wanted to uh, start, a, start a scholarship through the race to allow at least one Native American student um, to go to college and have, have some assistance there. And uh, through, through everything this last year, 
uh, we were actually able to do that for three individuals. This awesome person that took part in the HashK virtual run just said, hey, I want to buy the person you were talking about a laptop like you were talking about. And the person direct shipped a laptop to me and we gave it to this runner who's doing outstanding things at the university D2 level. And then uh, we were able to assist another student athlete who's going to Fort Lewis in Durango uh, with another $1,000 scholarship. And most recently, uh, we had a guy who contacted me who said, I want to do two things. I want to give you $1,000 to do two things. I want 600 to go to a scholarship recipient. And I want you to use another 400, the other $400 to provide some direct assistance to a family in need who's been uh, affected by COVID. And so I went and bought $400 worth of groceries and delivered it to a very amazing family who was all quarantined and was all positive uh, for, for three and a half weeks uh, who didn't have a, a way to even receive any food. And uh, with the other $600, we're putting it towards uh, this person's um, schooling, another student's schooling, who isn't even a runner, uh, but who I know uh, from here in Chin Lee and uh, is very deserving. So those are the ways. So if anyone wants to donate, just uh, go to the Canyon Deshay uh, Ultra dot com is our website and you'll see all the contact link to get a hold of me uh, or you can go to our facebook page just canyon to say to ultra on facebook and send me a message through there and uh we'll be more than willing to uh hear you out and and work with you and if you want to provide assistance or just get to know who i am and what we're all about here at a little bit deeper level um and hopes that you could come out for the ultra someday if, if you ever qualify qualify through the lottery because it's so crazy now. My man, wonderful. Yeah. And that to get into the race is, is super hard, but I recommend if you're a runner, definitely, you know, put in and try. Can Sean, can people come out and spectate? I actually don't, I mean, you know, if people just want to come and see and be a part of what goes on, is there a cap on that? Or can people come out during race weekend and kind of see and, you know, sit and listen and, and absorb everything? Yeah, so there there is not a limit on spectators, uh, but the way people spectate, there are limitations to that because to get inside the canyon, you have to have a permit and you have to be with a guide. So the only exception to that is the ultra marathon, but there's not really an exception. You know, the, the runner's bib is their permit and I'm sort of uh, filling in as their guide. But the way families get to come out and spectate is they go to the overlooks. The overlooks are on the, the cliff edge and there's railings and stuff up there. You can go to all the overlooks and watch the runners run up the canyon and turn around and run down the canyon. There's four overlooks that you can get to and watch the runners go up and then come back down on. And uh, right where the canyon, right where the race begins and ends is just outside of the park boundaries. And so there's no limitation to how many people can go to the start finish area to witness the start with the prayer that my father does to, to begin the morning. And then the prayer my father does in the evening when the last runner crosses the line, my, my dad does a closing 
Because again, we begin this, we believe in this circle, right? We always begin it and finish it full circle. So there's no limit to how many people can come and view from the, the overlooks or from the start finish area. And there's definitely no limit to the number of people who come on Friday night to get that uh, cultural exchange at the racer meeting. The racer meeting is two part. It's this is the course. These are the markers out there. Here are the aid stations. Here's what's at the aid station. You know, all the race details, the do's and the the don'ts, because the course actually runs through and over many archaeological sites. And so to preserve the natural and the cultural resources, there are a lot of don'ts uh, for the runners when they're in the canyon. And uh, culturally, there's a lot of do's. We want them to connect and have have a good time, but we want them to do it respectfully within the natural resources. Um, So after that is done, then we talk about uh, the why why the race is there, how it came to be. And then we talk about the culture and, and um, we, we have prayers and songs and a, a little cultural exchange after that. And we share some very intimate things about the Navajo culture at that racer meeting Friday night. It usually takes about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, but the goal is by the end of that, that evening, the runners and spectators go back to their hotel room or their campground because there's the campground. We have the racer meeting at the campground um, amphitheater. And so the goal is that the runners and the spectators get to go back to their room or their campsite that night with a, a real understanding of how they can enter into the canyon the next morning and truly experience the canyon in a cultural way and truly connect with it. Um, so there's no, there's no limit to it. And that's what a person would expect if they came to, to run or to spectate. Um, however, I will say that, uh, fingers crossed, we do get to host the 2021 version of the race this year. Um, so what happened is when we had to cancel the 2020 version, um, Everyone that was entered for 2020 was rolled over into 2021. So everyone that got in last year is who will be racing this year. Um, And because it's such a high demand race and uh, I'm a pretty grassroots, very simple person when it comes to the race, I don't like any frills. I don't like any hoops. I don't like any loops. I just like, you know, let's line up, let's run, let's connect, let's uh, experience and let's be here. And if a person has to drop, it's just that. A person has to drop from the race. Or if they can't make it out, you just give up your spot. You know, no refunds. It's just plain and simple, cut and dry. Get out here and run and experience. If you can't, you lose your spot. Um, And so um, if a person uh, does come out and run, uh, that's what we want them to do. And um, so going into 2021, this October 9th will be this year's run and event. Um, we want people to come out that have been entered and, um, make it out for it. And and I think that, uh, if there are spectators allowed, we'll see what the limitations are then because the Navajo nation has been very, very safe when it comes to exposure here, uh, because we are, are doing uh, some very Mm -hmm. important mitigation strategies to protect our elders 
protect our language and culture and protect our future with our children. And so if we're limited to spectators, I'll communicate that through the, the website and the Facebook page. Uh, but right now we're just keeping our fingers crossed that we can even have the event. Um, and so uh, my mom is all geared up. You know, part of the thing I didn't talk about was uh, some of the most fun things about cultural exchange is food, not just uh, the, the running and, and the awards with the, the, the handmade awards, but some of the most fun things about sharing culture is, is sharing food together. And so we, we share our traditional teas. We share, uh, share our traditional uh, corn meal, which we call twishchin. It's a blue corn that we turn into like a, uh, a, a mush, like a, a, an oatmeal kind of porridge thing. Um, and so the runners have that both before the race and then after the run. Um, and then my mom has all of her stews and, and vegetable stew and corn stew and mutton stew and fry bread and dry bread, the tortilla bread. Um, we have the melons that were locally grown. We have all of that there. And just we, we want to get back to, to building relationships and, and sharing, uh, sharing the love and, and being human again in this beautiful place we called uh, Mother Earth. Beautiful, man. I, I really do, ho do hope it, it happens uh, this October and that, you know, everything aligns and it's safe to have it and everyone can experience that because it's, it's such a special event. I will link to everything you just talked about, the Facebook group, the website, in the show notes. So if you're interested in getting in contact with Sean or donating or putting your name in the hat for the, uh, for the drawing to run the race, you can, you can uh, find it in the show notes. Um, man, I know it's getting late there. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and coming on and talking to me and sharing, you know, just your story, the stories that you shared a little bit about the race and about the Navajo culture. Um, anything you want to leave us with? No, just, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now, you know, and, and I want to thank you, Nico, for, for starting this podcast and, and congratulations on its very early success. That's exciting. Um, to see to see so many people uh, subscribe and log into it, it's it's wonderful. I think there's a lot of beautiful things in the world that we're detached from, and your podcast series is is a way to connect to the things that are more valuable in life, especially during a time like right now. The world is hurt both uh, through the pandemic. The people of the world are hurting because of the pandemic. But also the world itself, our mother, the earth, and our father, the sky, they're hurting. There's a lot of talk about global warming. And just like when you and I get sick or get the flu, we heat up and, and we sweat. And then we get cold and we get the chills. And, and we've seen that this last couple of years. We've seen record-breaking temperatures and fires in California and all over the West Coast. And then we've seen drastic cold snaps like this huge winter storm that just came through the Colorado area and, and Houston. I mean, and, and Texas got frozen and, and frozen, almost shut down the whole power grid. Um, you know, the earth and the sky are hurting just as much as the people of it are right now. And we all need to come together and remember what's important. Remember what's sacred to us as human beings, as children of the mother, as children of the sky and the stars and, and as children of the universe. And if we can do that, 
and reconnect to this to those valuable things, we can begin to heal ourselves. We can also begin to heal the earth and the sky and the things that are important and, and are the reasons we are here in this world today. So um, there's a lot of healing to do, and I encourage people to begin that process by simply going out in the morning and facing east and moving your body and connecting to the earth, connecting to the sky and to the air and to all people around you. And I challenge you to feel that connection and come back to begin your day in balance, in hajan, and move through your day with that philosophy and that idea in mind. Thank you for listening to the Star of the Ego Feed the Soul podcast. If you guys want to give back, the best way you can give back is by leaving us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts, subscribing or following along, and of course, sharing this podcast with your friends and your followers to help it grow, to help it reach more ears. Thank you guys so much, and we hope you tune in next time.